Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everybody. I am not preaching out of Proverbs. It's, that's a, where the paper was, and I opened it up, and I went, that's not what I'm doing. Um, Want to invite children to Children's Church? Um, meet your teacher in the back there as they're going. Um, first of all, I'm better. <laughs> and, and I look out, and I see big chunks of our congregation have returned, so I'm guessing that we're all doing a lot better, but there's still some folks who are out sick, too. And then uh, Ramey and I are both still a little bit snorkely, so... Um, let, let's start with prayer for illness, I mean, of all things. Uh, Lord, um, we are not you. Uh, Lord, you never rest, you never tire, you never get sick. You are constant, and you are full of life. And so, Lord, in these times when sickness overcomes us and, and knocks us out, we, we get a taste of our finality, of our limit, limited nature, of, of um, the fact that one day we will not be. And yet, Lord, in those times, I pray that you would be sustaining us and reminding us that you're good and that you will be with us, even in our weakness, as well as our strength. And uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, restoring a good portion of our folks' strength. And I pray for those who are still sick, Lord, would you visit them? with healing in your wings, and Lord, with um, a reminder to them that you will sustain them uh, through the difficulties, through the hard times, through the weakness. Um, Lord, we are fully and totally dependent on you. And Lord, that's especially true now as we turn to the beginning of your Ten Commandments, um, some of the clearest, most uh, important ethical teaching in all the scriptures since before us. And Lord, I confess I'm not fit to the task. Um, I, I can't do this, but Lord, you can. This is your word. Holy Spirit, you wrote it. It's given to your people. And so, Lord, would you come and be with us now as we turn to your word and help us to see what it is that you're saying to us. Um, help us to understand. Help us to delight in what we learn. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. So, we finally come, right? You know, we've been building up to this since early in Exodus. When, when Moses met God on the mountain in the burning bush, Moses said, you know, well, how would I know? And God promised him, you'll know because I will lead you back to this mountain and you'll, you'll serve me here. So really, as we've been working through the book of Exodus, it's been leading to this point. Why did God lead them out of Egypt? To lead them to himself, not just to set them free. He didn't go, okay, well, you guys, um, you're free. See ya. You know, go do something nice with your life. He led them out to lead him, them to himself. And so that's where we're at today. Um, when we look at what we're about to study, this, this chapter 20, um, there's some preparation that I'd like to do before we dig into the, the commandments. Um, first of all, I don't know about you, but my little header in my Bible says the Ten Commandments. And... Um, that's not in the Bible. That's a header that they typed in there. What the Bible calls this section actually is the ten words. Um, these are the ten words that God spoke, and it's mentioned in a handful of places. Exodus 34, we'll call it that. Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 10 will refer to it as the ten words. But in our Bible translation, words will be translated as commandments. Um, and I think the ten words idea comes from the very beginning. God spoke all these words. To Israel. This is what he said. So um, right there you can see the Bible kind of says this is an organic unit. Th these Ten Commandments belong together. They're identified as, as a unit. 
And even in the New Testament, it's spoken of in that way. Uh, Romans chapter 13, Paul says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments that are summed up in this. So, so Paul looks at the Ten Commandments as kind of a unit as well. Uh, so when we, we approach this, we're seeing this as something that is going to stand out as unique. This is a bonded unit that hangs together, and we haven't gotten to the law yet. What will happen is after chapter 20, then we get into things that are referred to as law. So the Ten Commandments kind of sits like this thing before we get to law. And so that, that raises some questions. Um, how do we handle it? What do we do with it? And I, I'll come back at the end and, un, and unpack some of how we understand Ten Commandments. But uh, just getting the, the, the framework nailed down here. Um, how are there Ten Commandments numbered? That is not as clear as you would think. It's not as clear as I would like. <laughs> For example, the Jews take verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, as commandment number one. Commandment number two for them is, you shall have no other gods, you shall make no images. That's commandment number two. And then the rest kind of flow the way that Protestants do it. Um, Roman Catholics would start at, um, I am the Lord your God. I mean, uh, you shall have no other gods before me as verse one, but then, or as commandment one, but also include uh, the carved image prohibition under commandment one. So then how do you get 10 commandments out of that? Well, you take the coveting at the end and you break it in two, which is... Uh, Covet your neighbor's wife would be kind of lust, and then covetousness would be the Tenth Commandment. Um, so that's Catholics and Lutherans tend to take it that way. Um, Eastern Orthodox are kind of like us, but they, uh, they put two and three together as the first commandment. So the, 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 you shall not have um, uh, carved images, that kind of thing. So the Protestants, the way we take it <laughs> is uh, we would say that I am the Lord your God is the introduction it is the, the pronouncement of who is speaking. And then the commandments are, you shall have no other gods. You shall not have carved images. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain. Um, and remember the Sabbath. And those would be the first four. And so that's how we take it. That's how we understand it. Um, if that is frustrating because we can't be sure where to divide this up, boy, that sounds really familiar in scripture. Go through the Old Testament and look at who are the, who are the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, it was Joseph, but then Joseph had two boys and they brought them in, and so now it's 13, but then we have to exclude Joseph, include those, and now we're down to, well, how does it? And the number, the, the list of who the 12 tribes of Israel kind of change a little bit, and it gets a little frustrating. What about who are the 12 apostles? After Judas is dead, um, they name Matthias in Acts chapter 1, and then we never hear of Matthias ever again, but Paul rises up as this really big, important person, and yet we, refer, we still refer to them as the 12, but are they the 13? Is it Paul? Is Matthias out? God has a way of really frustrating us when he does this. <laughs> he, he doesn't nail it down exactly the way we would like, and so with the Ten Commandments, there's some flexibility. As a matter of fact, even while I'm preaching through it, the first and the second commandment are so very closely related, I can understand how you would lump those two together. Um, but I'm going to try to keep them apart. We'll try to keep them separate. So um, that's basically the idea behind the Ten Commandments, is they are a unit. Um, how you find the Ten Distinct Commandments in there is up for grabs a little bit. There's some, some leeway, uh, some back and forth on it. But this is what God has pronounced to them. 
So one of the things that we want to do before, we're, we're kind of moving into this heavy law section of the book of Exodus. The Ten Commandments are really the introduction of what God is going to be doing through the rest of the book, which is thou shalt and thou shalt not. A lot of that. So uh, what I want to do is kind of remind us one more time of how I see happening in, in the text itself, how does God present law to us? And as I said last week, I think I said last week, I was almost here last week, I think I said that we were going to do Romans next. If I didn't, we're going to do Romans next. So um, uh, that will help us understand the context of Christianity and law. How do those two react? How do they interact with each other? But um, in this context, in the immediate context, remember chapter 16. The people come and they complain because they have no food. And God says, okay, I'm going to rain food from heaven on you. And I'm going to give it to you every day. Every morning you'll go out and there will be food scattered all over the ground. You go up and you pick up as much as you can eat that day. And anything you hold over will go bad. It'll breed worms. It'll stink. Um, except on the sixth day. And then it won't do that. And so the manna was not a natural provision where, you know, something fell out of the skies or, you know, some atmospheric condition. It's totally unnatural. But what God showed them in that is that he's going to give that to them for six days a week. The stuff for the sixth day will last to the seventh. On the, on the first day of the week, they'll go out and they'll pick it up and they'll eat again. And in the midst of that, what God gave them, what he introduced to them was the concept of Sabbath. And what I said at that time was that God is giving them Sabbath not as a don't, you better not work or I'm going to zap you, but... This is part of my provision. I am giving you something. There is built into my provision of manna a day of rest. And I expect you to rest. You need to rest. I built you so that you run out of energy. Anybody experienced that this week? Sunday, Sunday after church, I laid on the couch, wrapped in a blanket, and didn't move until 9.30 at night. I experienced that, that weakness, that need for rest in a big way. So what I said at the time was God, as he gives law in this context, is not doing it as, I'm going to zap you. I'm, I'm going to, you better not have any fun. If I catch you having fun, you're in big trouble, mister. What he did is he provided law in the context of his kind and generous provision. I'm going to feed you every morning, and I expect you to take a nap when I tell you to. So have Sabbath. So that's, that's the beauty of it. So when it comes to the Ten Commandments, um, one of the traditional approaches to how do you preach or how do you deal with the Ten Commandments is, um, this is straight out of the Westminster Larger Confession. What does the first commandment describe? What does it require? You have to do these things, and it's all what they found in the Bible. What does it proscribe? What does it say you can't do? You can't do these things. What does the second commandment say you must do? What does it say you, you shan't do? And, and that's a typical kind of way to approach this is here's a list of do's and don'ts. Um, we'll cover some of that. I mean, we'll hit those things. But what I'm trying to do is trying to keep it in the context of the story that we're being told. Um, one of the commentators was complaining because it seems like the Ten Commandments just kind of drops in the middle. And it's not connected to the rest of the story. And I went, well, did we read the same Bible? It's tied intimately into the story. Listen to how it begins. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. That ties not just into Exodus. It ties all the way back to Genesis. What do you mean? So I'm going to approach it from the idea that, first of all, it's not God's cosmic killjoy. And second of all, it is his provision. How is he providing for us in these things? What good thing is he giving us by giving us these Ten Commandments? So let's start. Let's take a look. God spoke all these words, saying, 
Now, it's possible because there's a chapter break there for us to forget how he said these things, what the context of it is. Um, as a matter of fact, I think most often when we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of them on stone where they can't hurt anybody. You know, unless you drop them, I guess. But, I mean, it, it, they, they're not threatening. They're on stone. They're just static and sitting in front of us. You have to dust them off once in a while. Stop. Go back to chapter 19. What context did God give this in? Imagine that you're one of the Israelites now standing there. You're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the mountain is shaking. It's trembling. Can you imagine the sound of a mountain shaking, the deep, deep rumble? Um, we had earthquakes recently. You can kind of feel them before you can hear them and see them and, and experience them. The whole mountain is shaking, <laughs> this low rumble. And not only is the whole mountain shaking, but the top of it is circled with smoke and clouds and deep thickness, and there's lightning flashing out of it and thunders rolling. And so you hear the mountain trembling, and you see these lightning flashes at the top, and it's covered in smoke. And coming off the top of that mountain is something like the bottom part of a mushroom cloud from a nuclear explosion. That, that upward funnel of energy is screaming off the top of this mountain. And in the middle of all of that, this trembling mountain, this, this lightning and thunder, this cloud, you can't see what's going on, comes a horn, a shofar, a ram's horn, you, you kind of hear it beginning to overcome those noises, and it's getting louder and louder and louder. And you're standing in front of the mountain, and there's a line drawn. And that line is, is stretched out in front of you, and you have been warned. If you cross that line, you will be executed. If one of your sheep wanders across that line, pick up rocks, throw it at it until it's dead. Why? Because God has ascended or descended. He has come down on this mountain in his holiness, and that's what's going on. And so the people are terrified, and rightly so. And out of this cacophony, out of this, this chaos at the top of the mountain, this awesome, in the most appropriate meaning of the word awesome, and I don't mean a really good burrito, I mean full of awe, suddenly a voice speaks. God begins to speak. God spoke all of these words saying, what that voice must have sounded like, I can't imagine to be able to come over, overcome all of that noise and to speak clearly in the midst of it. Whatever, we, whatever it sounded like, we know that it terrified the people because later they're going to say, Moses, you go talk to him. We can't bear to hear this anymore. We're going to die. You speak with him and tell us what he said and we'll do whatever he says, but don't let him speak to us anymore. So this voice is terrifying. It is overwhelming. It is filled with God's glory his holiness, his power, his strength, and God spoke these words. Now, the Ten Commandments are unlike other law because they're all in first-person singular, you shall, or second-person singular, whereas other laws are in third-person, they, and, and this is what the law says to everybody else. When God is speaking from Mount Sinai, he's speaking directly to the Israelites standing in front of him person by person. A million people scattered out over the plain in front of the mountain surrounded by their flocks, and God is addressing them personally. You personally shall not. You personally shall, period. That, that is the setting that we're in. So don't forget the terrifying nature of what's being said, of the way it's being said. It's, it, this is a scary experience, and this is what God says. I am Yahweh, your God. If there's been any doubt who I am, 
as I've been overcoming the Egyptians regularly, repeatedly, after one thing after another, defeating their, their gods, defeating their army, drowning their army in the ocean, after I've done all of this, this is who I am. I'm Yahweh, your God. This, this terrifying experience on the mountain, that's who God is. That's who their God is. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who led you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Even in this introduction, God is tying what he's doing back to who he is. He is saying, I'm the one who's leading you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that because way back long time ago, great-grandfather Abraham was told, your people will be in slavery for 400 years, and then I will visit them, and I will lead them out. So even in his announcement of who he is, he's saying, this is my covenant faithfulness to you. I led you out of Egypt. I led you out of the house of slavery. And I have led you to myself because I am your God and you are my covenant people. I am the God who led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's his announcement. That's his, his beginning, his pronunciation of who he is. And if you remember previously, we talked about how they made covenants in the Old Testament times. And one of the ways they made covenants was something called the Caesarian vassal treaty. And a Caesarian was a, a conquering king. The king came in and beat you. And so he comes in and he announces who he is. And this is the covenant that I'm going to make between you. You can keep your kingdom, but this is what the relationship is going to be like. And that's kind of what's going on here is he announces who he is. What has he done for Israel? Why should Israel be faithful to them? Because he led them out of the house of slavery. So that's, that's how it begins. Then the first commandment you shall have no gods before me. You shall have no, no gods. Now, is this God saying, well, there are other gods, but they're not as good as me, and so I don't want you to hang out with them. I want you to, to just be with me. He, he's not saying that, because when he says, I am the God who led you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, I said already, he takes us back to Abraham. He takes us back to Genesis. So go all the way back in Genesis. How did the book of Genesis begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, singular, God did that. Did he wrestle away from some of the gods portions of the heavens and the earth? No. He created them. There is no other God except for Yahweh. He is the God. So when he says, I, uh, you shall have no gods before me. He's not saying, I have any actual real competitors. There is no other god. There's, there's nobody else available for you. What he's addressing here is not his competitors in the heavens. He's he is talking to the people saying, other gods will appear. They will, they will seem to be legitimate. But you're not to worship them. You're not to participate with them. Remember, why I told you what I told you in Genesis chapter 1. You're going to go into the promised land, and you're going to meet Asherah, and she is the goddess of the fertility. She is the goddess of the harvest. Remember how harvest happens? God separated the land from the sea, and then he looked at the land, and he said, let there be, and vegetation popped up. Did Asherah have anything to do with that? She wasn't even an afterthought. It wasn't Asherah. It was me. You shall have no other gods. The, the, the fact that I am the creator of everything 
means that this other idea of other gods is foolishness. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, what about the, the end of the phrase, before me? So um, one of the things you could say is maybe he's saying, uh, you will have no other gods um, while I notice it in front of me. Don't do it in my face so I can see. Well, that can't be it. It's, that doesn't make any kind of sense. Is there any time God can't see? Is there any times when he hasn't noticed you? That's, that's not what's going on. The literal phrase there in Hebrew is before my face. You shall have no other gods before my face. So as long as I look away, then you can go have another god. Except I never look away because I see everything all at the same time. So that's, that's not the idea. Or before me, you can have other gods, but they can't rank higher than me. Um, I've got to be the only god. That's not monotheism. That's called henotheism, which is one god. Hena is the, word, the Greek word for one. So it would be saying, I have, you can have one god out of the many that there are, so pick the right one and, and that'll be good. Nope, this is, this is bold-faced monotheism, which we'll see in the second commandment. It can only be monotheism. God is saying, you don't even entertain the idea of these other gods. I am it. And, and so that's our first commandment. Um, you shall have no gods other than me. No gods before me. Now the second commandment, you shall make... You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments. So part two, uh, and again, you can see why this might be lumped together with the first one, can't have any other gods, don't carve anything. Well, I think there's a little bit more, and there's a, there's a slight difference between having other gods, acknowledging other gods, and the danger of saying, because this is exactly the danger that Israel is going to face, of saying, well, we carve this thing, and this thing represents our God. So at, at the golden calf, when Moses comes down the mountain, what Aaron tells them is he doesn't say, behold, another god, yay! He, he looks to Israel and he says, behold, the gods who led you out of Egypt. They found a way to express their God in a physical form, and it distorted who God is. So when God says, you shall not make yourself a carved image of in likeness of anything, what he's saying is there is a danger in freeze-framing me. There is, there is a danger in finding something to stand in as a representation for me. So imagine if they said, well, we're, we're, think of the greatest, most powerful thing. God, Yahweh has just delivered us from Egypt. What's the greatest, most powerful thing? An eagle. An eagle. It soars above everything, and it can see everywhere, and it's got sharp talons and a sharp beak. So we'll make an eagle, and we'll set it right here in the middle of the sanctuary, and behold, this is our God. What's missing from that picture? God, God is powerful, and he has piercing eyes and all of those things. What about his tenderness? Where in that picture do you get him saying, I am a mother hen and I want to gather my chickens under my, my wings? We've excluded part of who he is. We get the predator, but we don't get the caring and the loving person. So, so what if we take another image and we say, well, then we'll, we'll worship a big chicken because he wants to gather us under his wings and, or a pigeon. Won't that be nice? Well, now you've fallen off the, the other edge. Now we've snapshotted God in a way that says, well, he's all tender and nice and mild and meek. So what God says is nothing, nothing. 
Nothing can capture me. Nothing can, can contain who I am in a way that would facilitate worship. This is the problem we run into when we look for illustrations to describe the Trinity. The, the Trinity is like an egg. It has a yolk in the middle, it has an egg white around it, and it has a shell. And it's three different pieces, but it's one egg. I don't know about you, but when I eat hard-boiled eggs, I remove the shell and I still have an egg. You can't do that with the Trinity. You can't pick up some natural phenomena and say, this is your God. Um, besides, the other problem with that is the yolk has things that the shell doesn't have. And the shell has capacities and, and, and features that the white doesn't have. So they're not the same. They're not, they're, you can't look at that and say, here's a picture of your God. Um, the, all right, let's go the other way. Well, water, right? Because water is, is water. So water can exist as steam or ice or liquid. And that's what God's like because it's the same substance, but it can exist in three different forms. But it can exist in three different forms at the same time. It has to be water and then steam, but it can't be water and steam and ice all at the same time. Not the same water. So now we've solved the problem of substance but now we're into what we would call modalism, which it can only be one thing at one time. And so God is the father sometimes, he's the son sometimes, he's the spirit sometimes, and he oscillates around and he's really good. At, he's a very fast change artist. Do you see the problem with trying to grab something in nature and say, this is your God? This is exactly why God said you will make no carved image, because as soon as you make a carved image to express something of God, you have limited who he is. Now, we have an empty cross right behind me. Do you see Jesus hanging on that cross? No, because what happens, I speak as a former Roman Catholic, so I'm not just bagging on Rome for this. But when you see Jesus dead on the cross every Sunday, what you see is Jesus dead on a cross. Is Jesus dead on a cross? He has risen. He has risen indeed. So our cross is empty because it's not intended to express God. It's a picture, it's an image of his victory, his triumph. So if we have a dead Christ on a cross, um, I can remember as a child looking at the crucifix and just seeing this, this man with anguish on his face and he was always being perpetually tormented and never victorious. We never saw him raised from the dead. And so that's why as Protestants, we don't put Jesus on a cross. It captures one portion of who he is. What God has given us, the method that he has given us to express who he is, is something much more dynamic than a carved picture on a wall. He's given us his word. And so on Sundays, we preach the word. This is the Protestant impulse, the Protestant tradition is we preach Christ. Because then we can give the whole picture. Yes, Jesus died on a cross. Yes, he suffered. Yes, he rose again. Yes, he has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I can't picture that with a dead guy on a cross. So this is the problem that we have when we come to, you shall not make a carved image. As soon as we make that image, we have frozen one aspect, one portion. And God is much more dynamic and involved in that. So this, this is also why I have a problem with especially in the context of worship, that famous picture of Jesus at Gethsemane. Um, he's he's an a Anglo, Anglo white guy with nice uh, kind of blondish hair, blue, bright blue eyes, and he's, he's praying at, at Gethsemane. When you see that every week, and that's the image that you come in and you see every week, what you're seeing is Jesus in his doubt. 
Jesus in his, his, his trial. Jesus saying, Lord, not my, I don't want to go to the cross, not my will, but where your, your will be done. And you don't get the rest of it. You have to get the rest of it. That's why we can't capture Jesus in pictures. It's not wise to do this. It's not good. This is why God has told Israel, no pictures of me, no images, nothing. You shall not do that. Wait a minute, but weren't there cherubim sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, surely um, we can have creativity and, and, and um, expression in, in worship, right? Well, the problem with Israel is occasionally they would worship that thing. It wasn't supposed to be an object of worship. As a matter of fact, the mercy seat was what the, the lid of the ark was called. God's glory would appear before that. He would sit on top of that. His glory would fill the, the space above it. They were not walking and look and go, oh, yeah, God's glory. But look at that cherubim. Oh, my gosh. So that was never intended as an object of worship. So yeah, God said, build cherubim on top of this and, and weave them into the, the fabric and stuff. But that was never intended as the object of worship. So this is why God tells us, don't do that. Don't make carved idols. But we are post-enlightenment, uh, post-scientific, uh, secular, Western people. And, and when was the last time you saw an idol laying around in somebody's house where they came in and worshiped it. Surely we've overcome this. As a matter of fact, I heard an interview with Kathy Keller, and she said when she was a very young Christian, she was reading this going, well, God, you wasted a lot of time. We don't worship idols anymore. Um, why'd you spend so much energy on that? It, yeah, it was a problem for your people then, but it, I mean, it's just not an eternal principle. Well, listen to this. Listen to what he actually says. He says, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of anything. You shall not make an image of any likeness of anything. So what can become an idol at that point? Anything. You, 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 he doesn't say don't make a, an idol out of uh, an eagle or a cherubim or um, uh, a guy with a fish tail or you know, whatever. He says nothing. Anything, anything is in danger of becoming an idol. So don't make images of those. And so for us, the, the problem here is we need to be really careful that we're not making idols of things. And we're so sophisticated, we'd never carve it out of a piece of wood and set it up in the house. But that doesn't mean we don't have idols. So, so what is this prescribing? What is this telling us to avoid? Is he's telling us, look, I have given you all of creation to enjoy. I made it on purpose. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. If, if used correctly, Creation will lead you to me. So don't grab a piece of creation, bring it down, and say, this is expressing my God. That's, that's insufficient. He created a giant universe. Do you know how big the universe is? And that is just barely beginning to express portions of who he is. So how, how can we do this? So anything, then, is a temptation to become an idol. And, and we can find our comfort and our hope in it. We can begin to think, this is what delivered me is my good looks, not mine, but some of you are good looking, and maybe if your good looks is what, I, that's what's delivered me. Or my intellect, I'm so smart, that's what's delivered me. That's, that's what's led me out of slavery, that's what sets me free. My children, I have such wonderful children, my children have delivered me. Anything like that can then become a source of, of comfort, a source of, of worth. 
my money, my job, my career, my lack of a job, my, it's impossible to, to figure it all out. That's why God sums it up. He says anything, anything, any likeness of anything, nothing. Let, make sure it doesn't become an idol because we can make it an idol. So that's the picture that we're supposed to resist. Um, how is this God's provision? Well, it's God's provision because he's given us all of himself, not this little portion. His, his fullness, everything he is, he has presented to us. And so if we take just bits and pieces that we like or bits and pieces that we can, we can carve into something, we have limited all that he has given to us, all that he's offered to us. Now, the part that, that kind of blows my mind is, is it's here where he says, I am a jealous God. Not in the first one. He doesn't say, don't have any other gods because I'm a jealous God. He says, don't have any other gods. And don't make things to worship that are supposed to express me because I'm a jealous God. And this is where you get the idea that, that he's a monotheistic God. He is this God who is jealous of other things. Now, we need to kind of couch what jealousy is. There's good jealousy and there's bad jealousy. Um, this is one of the things I think that pushed Oprah outside of Orthodox Christianity is she heard that God was jealous and she went, God can't be jealous. I don't believe that God. And so she made up another God who wasn't jealous. Well, in a bad, jealous way, I can see what she's saying. Because imagine that you're at work and somebody gets a promotion that you think you should have had, and then you're jealous of them. And you're, you're angry at them, and you're bitter at them, and you never give them any, big, because they got something that you didn't have, and, and I'm jealous. Or, or somebody, or mom always liked you better, and so I'm jealous of you, and so we're watching Downton Abbey, and it's the, the Lady Edith, Mary thing going on all the time, is they're jumping at each other. But that jealousy kind of comes out, and that's a negative jealousy, and that's a jealousy that God condemns in the scripture. He says, don't do that. But imagine a couple goes to a dinner party, and the wife looks over, and this sweet young lady is really spending a lot of time with her husband, and, and talking, and and complimenting and, oh, tell me about your car or something like And she feels a twinge of jealousy. Rightly so. She should feel jealous. That's my husband. I don't want him being off with this other, you know, being led astray by this other sweet little thing. And so she will go over and intervene because she should. If she saw that and went, eh, it's no big deal. Is there a relationship? There's no, no kind of relationship. There's, that's when a jealousy is a good kind of jealousy, a right, a godly jealousy. Paul even mentions that in Corinthians. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And he even puts it in the context of marriage. He says, because I wed you to one God. I wed you to Christ. And so I'm jealous for that relationship. I want that relationship to be good. So this is what I was saying. This is that idea of God is one. Is he saying, I don't want you to be in love with something else. I want you to be in love with me. If you, if you form this false God, this false picture of who I am, it's going to drive a wedge in our relationship, and then I will be jealous. I want you to love me. So in God's provision in all of these things, he is not saying, I am going to give you all these rules, and you just have to live by them because I made them up, and they sounded good this afternoon. His goal in all of this is that very thing. I am a jealous God. You have no other gods before me. Why? Because no other gods in, the, in, in your entire imagination can satisfy you the way I am. I can. I created the universe. Why did he create the universe? For his own glory. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. 
You were built, you were created, you were formed by God on purpose. And you can only find joy and happiness and completeness when you are with him. A false God will not satisfy you. You will burn yourself out trying to get that God to conform to what you really want out of a God. And it won't work. The car will eventually break down. The bank account will eventually run dry. The children will grow up and move away. The marriage will, will not be everything that it, you would hoped it ha could possibly be because you're dealing with a person who sometimes is really great and sometimes has bad breath and smells in the morning. It's what happens. So whatever it is, that God that is trying to take that place cannot make you ultimately happy. This is why God's jealous. Did he create the universe because he was bored and lonely? I was hanging out one afternoon, and I thought, you know, got this big universe, and there's nobody in it, and it'd really be nice if I had somebody to talk to. Let me make some people. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. God has existed eternally as a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. He was never lonely. He always had somebody else to adore and somebody else to adore him because the three are perfect. So then why did he create the universe? Because he's meeting with himself and he sees the glory and the majesty and the wonderfulness of all that who he is. And he says, this is so great, we have to share it. Let's make some other people who can enjoy this. It wasn't out of deficiency, it was out of overflow. So when God says, I'm a jealous God, he's not the jealous God who goes, well, you better worship me because I didn't get enough worship this afternoon. He's the God who says, I want you to be full of joy. And anything that competes with me to fill you with joy, that's what I don't like. I am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me. What else could they possibly get? If they hate the, the purpose, the central core unifying reason for the existence of the universe, they go, I hate that. God's got, what, am I, what else am I supposed to offer you? Your life is going to be miserable, naturally. Of course it is. But God is also at the same time saying, I'm not satisfied with you wanting something else. I'm, not only will your life naturally be miserable, I will make your life miserable until you wind up coming back to me. It's going to be frustrating. I'll visit uh, iniquity of the fathers under the third and fourth generation. But... I will show steadfast love. It's that, that wonderful covenant word, chesed, untranslatable. It is, it is not just steadfast love. It is love to the utmost. It is covenant commitment. There's so many phrases that we could wrap around chesed to try to get at the idea of chesed. And he says, if you love me, I will show chesed to the thousands of generations. There's more to be said on the, on the hating, the, the visiting the, the sins of the fathers on the children but let's press on. Let's, let's keep going. I will show said to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments, including these. So now the third commandment, you shall not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hide, hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. One of the commentators said, Jesus, it's really hard to understand. Fourth commandment. <laughs> Come on, dude. There's got to be something to say about this. There is, this is, is a loaded phrase, and we're not exactly sure all the nuances of it. Um, the idea of taking the Lord's name, though, is probably, in its basic, most fundamental form, is talking about oaths. And you see oaths a lot in the Old Covenant. 
Um, as the Lord lives, you will not live this day. I will kill you before the day is over. As the Lord lives, I will deliver to you everything that I've promised. That would be taking the Lord's name, would be to say, in Yahweh's name, this is what I'm going to do. And, and to tie it to as the Lord lives, in other words, if there is a God in heaven, then I'm going to do this thing. So what, what God is saying here is, do not take my name like that in vain, in other words, for empty purposes. Don't look at somebody and go, as Yahweh lives, I will pay you $4,000 for that car, knowing good and well you're only giving him two. That, that it would be taking the Lord's name in vain at its simplest, most basic form. Um, it, it can't mean any less than this. Um, the way the Jews have historically interpreted this is they would never pronounce the name Yahweh. And I've been saying it all morning, so am I in violation of this? Um, some people would say, yeah, but not really, because we don't know how to pronounce Y-H-W-H. We don't know what it really sounded like. We just guess. But here's what the Jews did is whenever they would see those, three, those four letters, Y-H-W-H, in the Bible, they would, as they were reading through it, they'd see Yahweh, the holy name, and they would say instead, Adonai, which is the Lord. So that's why the convention in our Bibles is the Lord with Lord in lowercase uh, caps. Um, that's the convention is, is it's trying to get that same thing across. When the fifth century came around and there was a group of Jews called the Masorites who said, you know what, we're losing our pronunciation ability. We're not pronouncing as well. So we need to find a way to annotate the text so that people know the, the vowels that go in there because Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. It's all consonants. So what they did is the Masorites came up with this elaborate system of dots and lines and, and arcs and circles that they would place around the holy letters. They would never insert anything in the letters. They would never insert a, a, a letter between these letters. This was God's word. This is what he had given us. And so we'll put dots and, and, and circles and different symbols around there, and that will be how you pronounce the word. Based on the tradition that they had, this is how the words will be pronounced. Well, when they came to Yahweh, what they did is they didn't put the vowel dots for Yahweh because probably by that point they'd forgotten them because they never said the Lord's name. The only, there was only one person in all of Israel who said the Lord's name, and that was the high priest when he went behind the veil on the Day of Atonement. That was the only time that the holy name could be spoken. So what they did is they put the vowel dots for Adonai around Yahweh and came up with the word we sang today, Jehovah. Uh, when it's gone through Latin, it turns into Jehovah. Um, that's, Jehovah is not the Lord's name. Never was. Um, it was always first-year Hebrew students' mistake to say that. <laughs> that's what that name is. It's not bad. It's not horrible. God's not going to zap us for saying that. And when I say Yahweh, I'm not even sure if that's correct. A Jewish friend of mine said, why isn't it Yahweh? Because the Wa and the V can both be, I was like, I don't know, because that's not how we say it. <laughs> it's, it sounds like Yahweh, so that's what we say. So when I say Yahweh, is that taking the Lord's name in vain? Well, it could be. It, it could be if I'm throwing it around flippantly. If it doesn't have any meaning, any, any, any measure to it, um, slam your, your thumb with a hammer and yell, Jesus Christ, that's taking the Lord's name in vain, even though his name isn't Jesus and his last name's not Christ. His name is Yeshua, and he is the Messiah. But, um, so to yell Yahweh in, in a flippant way might be to take his name in vain, to take it on my lips, to use it in a vain way. So why does God care about this? Why does, why does this rank in the Ten Commandments, that you shall not use his name in vain? So much so that the Jews never used his name and forgot how to say it. 
Um, what's going on there? Well, I think if we tie, if we stick close for the moment, if we kind of hew close to the idea of the vowel or the verse, the vowel, vowel, I'm, I'm stuck on letters, the vowel, not the vowel. If we stick close to the vowel, what you're saying is, as Yahweh lives, I will pay you $4,000 for that car. I have no intention of paying you $4,000 for the car. In other words, Yahweh doesn't really live. So I think that's where the danger comes in, in taking his name lightly, is we're treating him as if he's nothing. So God is ultimately, eternally, perfectly holy. He is utterly other. And so if we take his name on our lips, we should do it with a sense of who this is we're addressing. Remember what the people are looking at. The mountain is shaking, the trumpet is blowing, the, the smoke, the lightning, the flashing, the, the terror of what they're seeing. And he says, don't take my name in vain. No wonder they said, never say the holy name. It must have been terrifying. So for us, we could do this if we begin to throw the name around lightly. See, it's, it's very easy to not say the name and then still live stupid. It's much more difficult to say, I'm a Christian, and therefore, I have to live in accordance with who Christ is. I'm a Christian. I have taken on myself the name of Christ. Therefore, I have to live carefully because I don't want to take his name on me in vain, in, in a light and a flippant way. And so God provides for this. This is one of his provisions is reminding us, I have fixed my name on you. You are my people. You belong to me. Therefore, live carefully. Live very carefully. My name resides on you, and that's no small thing. And then the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant, your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore... The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So we already kind of dealt with Sabbath when we were in chapter 16, is, is what's going on with Sabbath. Now, there we were just introduced to the idea, you're not going to get any food on the Sabbath, so just rest. Because if you go outside looking for it, ain't nothing going to be there anyway. Just relax. Um, now God is taking it the, the next step. He's taking it one notch more serious, and he gets more specific on what you may and may not do on the Sabbath. So before, what you could not do on the Sabbath was don't go out looking for food because I'm not putting it out. Now he gets a little more specific. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath day is a day to be set apart, segregated from the rest of your week. This is to be standing out as something very different. It's not just no, no manna. Now it is holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Um, I remember somebody went to like old Jamestown or something and was talking about to the, the, the actors at old Jamestown, the, the settlement, they, they get into character and they act like the Puritans and somebody said something about the weekend and they looked and said, what is a weekend? And they said, you know, Saturday and Sunday. The Lord commanded you to work six days, not five. Why are you not working six days, you slacker? I... Uh, <laughs> So he says, six days you do your work. In the, in the six-day period, you do your work. On the seventh day, you do no work. That, that's the, the positive and the negative command here. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. It's not just that it's a seventh day. It is a Sabbath. It is a rest day to the Lord, to the Lord. 
Um, this is a day that's supposed to be set aside to God, that, that you shall do no work. And here's the thing is we said that the first tablet of the law, the first four commandments, really are you and God, but they're not, are they? What else is going on here? Well, um, you shall do no work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your, your livestock. You can't even leave the, the, uh, your ox chained up so it's treading you know, grain or something. You, even then it has to rest. Or the sojourner, not even an Israelite. This is a foreigner traveling with us. So here's an example where the first tablet of the law isn't exclusive to just your relationship with God, is it? Oh, by the way, back up one. What about taking the Lord's name in vain? If you swear an oath, who are you swearing it to? The person you were going to buy the car for $2,000, $4,000 from. So even in that, all of a sudden, now you're having to interact with other people. It's not just you. It's, it's you and other people. There, there, it gets a little sloppy. If God had kept the tablets, you know, he didn't even keep the numbers straight. So how can we expect him to keep the people out of the tablet one and that kind of stuff? This is because we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in a bubble where we don't affect anywhere else. This is the, the myth. This is the, the horrible lie of secularism. Secularism says, believe whatever you want. Just keep it to yourself. People in, running for office, when they say, I believe in God, or I, I oppose abortion because I believe God created people in his image. Hey, you can't say that. Keep that to yourself. Is it possible for an integrated person, a, a whole person, body, soul, spirit, mind, who has beliefs about what education should look like and beliefs about what human beings are like, is it possible for them to keep that separate? That's insane. It's nuts. So when people get all upset because, oh, they brought their religion into my, my politics, and <laughs> I'm an integrated person. I, this is what I do. My, my religion affects that. My Sabbath affects other people. I, I'm not going to have somebody go Sabbath Go work on a Sabbath for me so that I won't sin by having them do the work. That, that, that one removed, you know what that is? That's a violation of the Sabbath. God was clear, don't, don't make your ox go out and work. So maybe we should turn off our Roomba on Sunday. I just, that just occurred to me. Maybe I'm violating the Sabbath because I think right now Jeeves is running around vacuuming my house. And, 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 and am I making him work on a Sabbath? You see where you can go with this? And, and where this will wind up going as it unveils through more and more law is there'll be more and more restrictions until we get to the new covenant where you can't walk so far and you can't uh, do this or you can't do that. There are modern conveniences called um, uh, Sabbath mode on ovens where you can load up your oven the night before and flip on Sabbath mode and the, the fire is burning. It doesn't ever go out because you can't kindle a fire on the Sabbath and then at the right time it warms up your food for you. But you didn't do it. You didn't kindle a fire, and you kept the Sabbath. This is where you can get really wigged out on this stuff. And this is exactly what happened. This is where the Pharisees went, where they got so wrapped around the axle about Sabbath that Jesus healed a man, and they went, you can't do that. Forgetting the fact that a man was born lame, and Jesus just healed him. They went, no, that's illegal. Talk about taking your eyes off the prize here. So let's not get too wrapped around the axle here. What we're supposed to be doing is seeing Sabbath as provision, as a time of rest, as a time to refresh. And it not just applies to you, it applies to your children and your livestock. That's the one that blows my mind is your ox better get the day off. So I'm going to call and cancel um, Jeeves right now. 
He doesn't count. He's not live. He's not livestock. There you go. I'm free. Okay. Um, and even the sojourner who's in your gates, you don't hire a foreigner to do your lawn on the Sabbath for you, is what it's saying. Now, the reason, why do we have the Sabbath? He says, in this instance, he says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea that all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here's another instance where God is taking us back to the beginning of the story. Moses is writing this. He, uh, my theory is he started writing Genesis, and then he just didn't stop. Because the way Exodus picks up is it just links right in there. So he started that story. And so when he mentions this, he is expecting us to have read that nonstop from there to here. So you know what's going on when God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. Why can he be the God of the Sabbath? Why can he be the one who says, on the, se the seventh day you shall rest? Because what did he do? He created everything. Is there any portion of creation he's not Lord over? None of it. All of it is under his control. He created it all. That's, the, that's what he's drawing us back to in this idea of creation, is he's saying, I am the God over everything. So consider the manna. Don't forget, I'm telling you, don't pick it up on the seventh day because it's not going to be there, and you're not going to starve to death because I'm the Lord over the manna, and I will provide. So can we afford to take a Sabbath and rest in the Lord on one day of the week? Is it possible do you think you're going to die if you don't? Will you go out of business? It's possible for the Lord to provide. Why? Because he's the God over all creation. He did all of this. The Lord blessed it and made it holy. Now, this is not the only explanation of the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy, Moses is going to explain the Sabbath again. He's going to use very similar terms. But instead of saying, because he created everything, he said, don't forget. Don't you forget your Sabbath. Because I am the God who led you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You were slaves. Don't forget what it's like to be a slave. And so when you come to your Sabbath, you remember your Sabbath. And so, and so there's, there's a slightly different reason, a slightly different application. So these are the Ten Commandments. These are, well, the four of the Ten Commandments. This is our first tablet. And so now I want to ask the question, do the Ten Commandments apply today? Do they apply to us? Should we pay attention to the Ten Commandments? One of the approaches is, well, when we're dealing with the question of law, and, and like I said, we'll touch on law in the coming weeks, and we'll have to wrestle through some of this, and then we're going to go to, Reb, uh, to uh, Romans to really help us wrestle through the question of the relationship between the law and the Christian. But one of the approaches that you may hear is, well, if it's not repeated in the New Covenant, then it doesn't carry over from the Old Covenant. So if, if, if God didn't pick it up and repeat it and tell us in the New Covenant we have to do it, then we don't have to do it. We just ignore all that other stuff. Um, so that, that's the idea. Here's my problem with that is how do you defeat that? If I find anything in the New Covenant, I say, see, this is from the Old Covenant. They go, yep, it's repeated, so it counts. There's no way to undo that. There's no way to counter that. No counter evidence that you can give to say, well, here's something that's not repeated in the New Testament. Really, where is it? It's in the New Testament. Then it's repeated. You see what I mean? It's an undefeatable, I don't like undefeatable questions. There should be some way to explain it. So that's the first problem. The other problem is, where did you get that idea? Did you find somewhere in the New Testament that says, if not repeated, not carried over? Where do you get that her hermeneutic? You don't get it from the Bible. That's not how our apostles treat it. As a matter of fact, when Paul is talking about um, um, the commandments, remember I mentioned at the beginning of uh, uh, Romans chapter 13, he says, 
Um, if do not murder, don't uh, commit adultery, don't lie, if there's any other commandments, he just kind of throws it open and says, all those other ones too. Yeah, they're all summed up as love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, but that's only the second tablet of the law, right? That's all he coded from. Well, didn't we just have that problem with the Sabbath? <laughs> don't put people to work. Isn't that caring for somebody on the Sabbath? Isn't that loving your neighbor as yourself by not making them work for you or something? So you see the problem with this is, is when we say not repeated, not, not um, um, carried over, is we immediately run into problems with it. So I, I don't particularly care for that approach. If that's your approach, nail me later. <laughs> uh, we'll wrestle through it together. We'll talk about it. So not repeated, not binding is not really great. Um, also, if I can just throw one more monkey wrench into that one, is it okay to marry your sister? Tell me from the New Testament, period. Show me from the New Testament where it's not okay to marry your sister. Well, in, in Corinth, Paul said there was a man living with his mother. Yeah, that's his mother. Tell me where, why I can't marry my sister from the New Covenant. It's not carried over, therefore it's not binding, right? And there are other examples of sexual uh, ethics that, that don't do that. So that, that, that doesn't work. I don't think that's a satisfying answer. Um, so I recently listened to a podcast, and the question to John Piper was, are, are Christians under the Ten Commandments? And Piper just kind of sat back and looked and went, no. I'm like, the other shoe? <laughs> Is that it? He said, no, we're, un we're not under law. We're under grace. So we're not under the Ten Commandments. But then as he went on and explained, he did not say the Ten Commandments don't apply. He said we're not under them. So it's not like you get up in the morning and you go, okay, what are the commandments? Boy, I better do these because if I mess one of these up, I'm in big trouble. That's not our relationship to the law. So do the Ten Commandments apply for us today? Yes, they do, but they don't apply in the same kind of way. They apply to us in that God has, has done something marvelous in the New Covenant. You must be born again. In order to even see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. The Holy Spirit makes us born again. The sign and seal of the new covenant is heart circumcision, not physical circumcision. So once your heart is circumcised, God takes that heart of stone out and he replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart that's designed, that is desirous of following him because you find in him your fullness, the beauty, the glory of who he is. Why would I not follow that? That's the most wonderful thing ever. And written on that heart are the Ten Commandments. Written on that heart are the laws that say this is who God is. And we go, of course I love that. So are we under the Ten Commandments? If you, if you violate the Ten Commandments, is God going to zap you tomorrow? You, didn't, you worked on the Sabbath? Oof, you're out of it. I don't want you anymore. No, we're not under law. We are under grace. And so that's the beauty of this. So do, do the Ten Commandments apply to us? Yes, they do. They really, really do. Including the Sabbath. One of the arguments that I've had arguments is too strong a term. One of the discussions I've had online before is, well, the nine, it's the nine commandments and one really good idea. That is, you don't have to keep a Sabbath, but boy, it's a good idea to keep a Sabbath. This is, so am I free to not go to church? Well, the church, that's not Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. Okay, but am I free to not go to church? Well, yeah, of course. Really? Uh, I, I don't think we're free to not go to church. I think we're supposed to gather together. Don't neglect the meeting together of your, yourselves, right? This is, this is a, a, we get Sabbath not from Moses, we get it from Jesus. That's who it comes to us from. 
And so they say, well, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Covenant, and therefore they're binding. Well, I'm sorry, but the, the Romans chapter 13 thing I just cited blows that out of the water because it says if there's any other commandments. And that includes the Sabbath. So repeated binding. End of, end of sermon. Let's pray, right? Um, what we have to be careful is to not try to do Old Covenant things in a New Covenant setting. We don't go and pick up the Old Covenant law and bring it wholesale into the New Covenant untouched and go, well, therefore, there we have to do that that way. It comes to us only through Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? He said, look, I didn't come to cancel the law. I didn't come to make it go away. I came to fulfill it. So law comes to us fulfilled in Christ. Not zap, it's gone. I heard one person say, Matthew chapter 5, right, the, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, that is the end of the Old Covenant law and the beginning of the New Covenant law. It's like, really? That, that doesn't make sense to me. He, he said, you heard it said. He didn't say, you've seen it written. And what he contradicts, where in the uh, Old Covenant law, for example, does it say if you um, commit murder, you'll be held to the highest court? That wasn't the law. That was the Pharisees. What he was saying is what he said at the beginning. I didn't come to, f to eradicate the law. I came to fulfill it. And your righteousness, by the way, had better exceed that of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees say this. I'm saying if you hate your brother, you're guilty. So that, that's that question. I'm breaking into a future sermon that I'm going to hate myself for doing. So let me wrap it up before I get way far ahead of myself. Um, one last thing on Sabbath, though. One of the other objections to saying the principle, the concept of Sabbath abides in the New Covenant comes from a handful of places in the Old Covenant that tie the Sabbath to the Mosaic Covenant. For example, coming up in Exodus 31, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord Oh, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So the Sabbath is a sign and seal of the Old Covenant. We're not under the Old Covenant, therefore we don't keep Sabbath. That's the line of reasoning. Um, I, don't, I don't think that really holds because what's attached with the Sabbaths is all the rules and the laws. That was the Old Covenant. That was the sign and seal of the Old Covenant was the laws not the principle. And besides, I already kind of snuck it in because in chapter 16, we saw Sabbath existed before law anyway, right? So the, the, the attendant portions of the Sabbath were part of that. Um, that's a big complicated issue too, and, and we can't go into it now. Um, maybe we can, we can touch on that some more, maybe unpack it more when we do the laws, we'll see. Um, but so far, this is the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. This is our reaction, our responsibility, our relationship with God. And it's not because he's a killjoy. He's saying, don't have any other gods because I'm the only God that there is and anything else is not going to fulfill you. He says, don't make an image and say that's me because it's less than who I have expressed myself to you to be. It's a, it's a snapshot. It's a piece. It's not the wholeness. Don't swear an oath in my name that you fully don't intend to keep because what you're saying is God doesn't know. He isn't alive. He doesn't care. He won't be involved. This won't cost me anything to say Yahweh and, and throw it around. And then finally, don't skip Sabbath. We, we were built to need rest. We, we were designed to need rest. And that rest is at its most satisfying, at its most complete when we rest in him.
And we say, Lord, I have put all of my hope in you. I'm resting in you. And this one day, I'm not going to devote to anything else. I'm just going to say, Lord, it's yours. Be wonderful to me. Let me delight in who you are. And then I'll get busy on Monday with work and with fixing the car and mowing the lawn and those kind of things. But right now, Lord, I want to focus on you and your resurrection power. And that's the first tablet. Now, the second tablet is going to focus more on people. It really is. It's going to be more, you know, don't murder. Well, we're not going to murder God. God doesn't die. Um, so that really is focusing more on the people part, side of the equation. But you don't get to the second tablet without going through the first. And so we'll see that next week. We'll understand why these are the laws, why they, they, they impact like that, because we've gotten through the first tablet first. So with that, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for being our God. Thank you for... Um, demanding that we worship you, demanding that we have no other gods, demanding that we rest in you, demanding, Lord, that we don't make any images, because any of that, Lord, will steal from the joy that we could have in you. Any of those things would scale back the full revelation of who you are that you've given to us, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of the divine nature. So, Lord, thank you for the warning. Remind us repeatedly as we are prone to come up with weak illustrations and, and, and find our satisfaction and our hope in, in the things that we make with our hands rather than you who provide them. So, Lord, I pray that the Ten Commandments written on our hearts would incline us away from these things and toward the things that you have desired, and which is more of you. And Lord, that's what we want is more of you. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.